This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 26, The Indus Valley Civilization. might expect is centred around the Indus River. However, as we are going to discover, the peoples who we refer to as the ancient Indus Valley civilization covered such a large geographical area that we can also include the Gagahakra River, which ran parallel to the Indus River, and has also been hypothesised to be the Vedic Sarasvati River, and by Vedic we mean of the Vedas, which are ancient scriptures that belong to the Hindu religion. Back in the first volume of the podcast, we recognise that agricultural practices appeared to emerge on a widespread scale sometime between 7000 and 6000 BCE. Mergar is a good example of an Indus Valley Neolithic village that demonstrates the domestication of wheat and barley as well as goats, sheep and cattle. These people would be living in simple mud brick houses but would have been creating ornaments which included materials which would have had to have been imported from areas to the north and west indicating long distance trade. After 5000 BCE, we observe that this society would have started working with ceramics and then metals, which seem very natural progressions in the Neolithic and Chalcolithic world. It would be the British, while in modern Pakistan, who would stumble across an ancient site of great interest during the 1820s. More specifically, in the province of Punjab. The city would come to be known as Harappa and its glory years would be dated between 2600 and 1900 BCE, a period referred to as the mature Harappan. However, clay tablets dating back to around 3300 BCE were discovered which are very interesting. Firstly, if we look back during episode 21 about the story of writing, we spoke of the emergence of the Harappan culture around the Indus Valley and mentioned the emergence of a writing script called Indus script. And this coincides with the mature Harappan period around 2600 BCE. However, the clay tablets that date from centuries earlier seem to contain marks that some experts claim to be a form of writing that represents an earlier form of Indus script. It is debatable that this would also be earlier than the dates proposed for the earliest use of cuneiform and Egyptian hieroglyphs. I hasten to add 
that this is all still speculation at this stage, however. A lot of the archaeological opportunities at Harappa lie underneath a modern town, but there has been an opportunity to be able to build a good level of understanding about the progressions of the culture, even if we cannot find out too much about anyone on an individual level. During this episode, we will uncover some surprising and interesting facts about this amazing civilization that is kept in the shadows of the more visually awesome ancient Egyptians, rather like those societies of ancient Mesopotamia. The nearest river to the site of Harappa is the Ravi River. Now, as much as the Ravi River is a short distance away from its modern route, it is believed to have had a different route in ancient times, which explains the location of the city. In fact, this unpredictable nature of the rivers is going to play a vital role in the successes and failures of the society as a whole. The Ravi River is one of a number of rivers which constitute the Indus River system. The name Punjab actually derives from the Persian translation of five rivers so we can even find a clue about the complex river system in the name of the region. Floodlands and Irrigation Much like those earliest residents of the Nile River, those who lived along the Indus also exploited the floodlands in order to produce huge quantities of agricultural yield which required the construction of granaries for the storage of surplus. It would not be the mastery of the rivers that would draw wealth into the lands of the Indus but also the exploitation of the sea route to Mesopotamia. Previously the main trading neighbours of this region would have been the nomads of the Iranian plateau and the lands of the modern day northern Afghanistan from whom the Harappans would acquire their beautiful lapis lazuli, the irresistible deep blue metamorphic rock which the early Sumerians were also enticed by. Now, villagers of the Indus Valley civilization were happy to cut out the middlemen and set sail for the lands of Mesopotamia directly, which meant direct access to all of the societies of the Persian Gulf more and more villages would emerge in the Indus Valley as a result of this wealth and surplus. Soon, this culture would cover an area that may have been even larger than the area of influence of the Egyptian Old Kingdom. There appeared to be very little in the way of conflict and power struggles between the settlements, with plenty to go round and an apparent limit to the lengths that villages and towns would go to in order to interfere with each other's affairs, unlike the emerging city-states of Mesopotamia. Only two large cities that were the home of tens of thousands were discovered, one being Harappa and the other being Mohenjo-Daro, an incredible city which we will discuss in more detail later. These early cities were not nearly as fortified as one might expect and the lack of discovery of arrowheads by comparison to other societies might go a long way to telling us why the fortifications were deemed as unnecessary. It just seems that the Indus Valley civilization was a lot more peace-loving than some other societies. 
there is very little that has been excavated that demonstrates the details of the Indus Valley Civilization's earliest attempts to irrigate its rivers. However, the acceleration of its growth, coupled with the advanced sanitation techniques of mature Harappans, can only have come from the good knowledge and practices of water control and management. The fact that we can prove agricultural surplus means highly successful agriculture was taking place. Ancient canals have been discovered by a French archaeologist called Henri Paul Francfort in the early 1990s, but it is tricky to date them exactly. Early Harappan Culture Now, we talk of the Harappans and we talk of the Indus Valley Civilization, and this is because they are synonymous. Harappa is a site which demonstrates the culture of the Indus Valley Civilization, and these are common aspects to the cultures of the vast expanse of settlements, but we don't necessarily think that there was a ruler of an empire. The civilization quite possibly emerged as part of a natural advancement of the agricultural societies that had developed over the preceding few thousand years. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, when referring back to our knowledge of Indus Valley peoples through the Neolithic period, we discovered that they had domesticated animals such as sheep and goats, but we also discovered that they had domesticated cattle such as the zebu. There was also a wild Indian oryx native to the area, which is now extinct, with speculation about whether it could be the ancestor of the domestic zebu and ultimately interbred with the domestic zebu. The cattle would have certainly been used as beasts of burden, with evidence of cattle-drawn carts for passengers and goods, illustrated by the discovery of artwork such as sculptures. The Indus Valley peoples would have exploited the fish-rich rivers to supplement their diet of both domestic and hunted meats. We can even speculate that the beasts of burden mentioned were used for ploughing fields, as we have discovered what might be the earliest evidence of ploughed land. The ancient town of Kalibangan which can be located in the Indian state of Rajasthan, demonstrated evidence of ploughed land dating back to 2800 BCE. Now, we believe that the Indus Valley peoples were irrigating the rivers in order to create an agricultural surplus demonstrated by the construction of what have been proposed to be granaries in towns such as Harappa. Wheat and barley would have certainly been the most popular crops, but pulses, peas and rice were also cultivated. The ploughed fields would have been well fertilised by the silt of the waters irrigated from the river. The gathering of fruits would have also been practised, so alongside the hunting of animals, we can see that hunter-gathering was not something that was never ever practised but the society certainly would never have been able to survive by this method. In order for this kind of large-scale production to work in the larger cities of the Indus Valley, a process of stratification 
must have happened within its society, which is another way of describing the formation of a class-based society, where agricultural maintenance would have been carried out by a working class. However, if we look at other ancient river societies of Mesopotamia and Egypt, we can see a definite establish of a form of religious monarchy, with a king ruling over an elite class of priests, ruling from palaces and temples. We don't see these large palaces and temples in the Indus Valley cities, however. So maybe the maturing of the expanding agricultural civilization took a slightly different path in this area of the world. Going back to the city of Mahenjo-daro, we can see the emergence of a product which we have not mentioned in any other part of the world previously, the cultivation of cotton. Textile production is believed to have been another great success of the Indus Valley civilization and cotton would have contributed towards that. The cotton industry of this area is ingrained throughout its history and was certainly of great interest to the British East India Company who also discovered a lot of ancient sites during the 19th century during their geological survey of India. We can feel confident through study that textiles were expertly produced throughout the time of the Indus Valley Civilization, during the early Harappan or from 3300 BCE. Artisanry Let's take a look at some of the artisanry of the Indus Valley Civilization and see if it gives us any further clues about their day-to-day -day lives. For example, we referred to a clay item which has been described as a toy. The item actually has multiple pieces which are two bullocks and a cart with a driver. The cart sits on a two-wheeled axle. So those peoples of the Indus Valley were apparently utilising wheeled transport, pulled by beasts of burden which was quite an advanced technology, comparable to Mesopotamia and ahead of the Egyptians. These carts would have been extremely useful, bringing the ability to transport large amounts of materials and resources from one place to another. It could be the agricultural yield being transported to the granaries or the textiles of the workhouses being transported to the merchants. Large-scale movements of goods would have been essential to sustain the larger and widespread societies of the vast Indus Valley civilization. We can see similar activity in Mesopotamia, but in Egypt it seems that society was closely knit with the Nile, and large-scale movements of goods probably were more likely to travel by boat from one city to another. It appears that societies of the Indus Valley had an interest in the creation of jewellery, gold neck chokers which must have been made using intricate expert techniques such as granulation by the goldsmiths who created them demonstrate a mastery of metallurgy. 
These same highly skilled techniques were used to create other types of jewellery, such as ear ornaments and gold bangles. Sometimes metals would be used alongside ivory, faience, seashells and gemstones to create necklaces, pendants, rings and anklets. We shouldn't feel too surprised about this though. All the earliest ancient societies loved jewellery. Visual style and class was something that was very important to the Indus Valley civilization, as well as the Sumerians as demonstrated by the gold jewellery of Queen Puabi and the extensive hair decoration of the Minoan ladies depicted in their frescoes at Knossos. Jewellery can be traced back to a time long before the agricultural revolution and it is fascinating to see how much it meant to the ancient societies. The iconography of cultures is also something that can be traced back to a time before the agricultural revolution and is equally interesting to trace forward into the ancient societies. Artifacts that have been discovered at Indus Valley civilization sites, the bull was one popular mascot of the Harappans which is similar to the Minoans. However, cattle would have been extremely important to these societies for their many agricultural uses. Some seals depict an animal with a cattle head, but a solitary horn protruding from the centre of its head. It has been speculated that this is the earliest depiction of the mythological unicorn, a creature which the classical Greeks believed lived in the far-off lands of the Indus. However, it could just be an interpretation of a side-on view of a two-horned oryx simply depicted with one horn due to the invisibility of the second horn behind it. I am sorry that these statements insinuate the non-existence of the unicorn to all of you unicorn lovers. Now then, if we take the opportunity now to go back and speak of the gold bangles of the Indus Valley artisans, then this brings us very nicely to one of the most well-known human artefacts of this civilization. It has been called the Dancing Girl, and it dates to around 2500 BCE, and it was excavated in the city of Mohenjo-Daro. It is a bronze sculpture made using the lost wax process, which is a process described way back in episode 18 of volume 1 on metallurgy. So the shape of the bronze sculpture was originally made from wax before being encased in clay, heated until the wax liquefied, leaving a cavity in the clay which could then be filled with molten bronze before the clay was broken away from the solidified sculpture. The girl is not necessarily dancing, so I think we should disregard that description. She stands with her right hand on her hip and her left arm holding an object, but interestingly her left arm is covered from top to bottom with bangles. She wears few bangles on her other arm, and a necklace. 
We have no idea who created this sculpture or what she represents, but we do know that there has been a similar bronze statuette that has been discovered in Mohenjo-Daro, a little lacking in the same quality, but nonetheless similar. The dancing girl of Mohenjo-Daro does create a lot of questions, however, due to her unusual nature. Now, we love talking of prehistoric and ancient women depicted with very voluptuous hourglass figures, and by and large we do find Indus Valley artefacts made from stone and ceramics who also have the same accentuated hips and breasts that we may expect to find from ancient female figurines. The dancing girl does not have such an accentuated figure though. The explicitly detailed body demonstrates that she is wearing no clothing apart from her jewellery but she is unusually lean and slender with humble hips and breasts and seemingly elongated limbs. Being made from bronze is also quite unusual by comparison. Some have speculated that she may represent an African lady but the truth is that there's really no way to tell with what we know. Another iconic statue discovered in Mohenjo-Daro is made from soapstone, also known as steatite. Soapstone is a metamorphic type of stone and was popular as a material for Indus Valley sculptures. The sculpture in question once again is surrounded by mystery and not least of all because it has been named the Priest King. In a land where temples and palaces seem to not exist as they do in Mesopotamia, Egypt and the Aegean. The sculpted upper torso and head of a bearded man wearing a robe over one shoulder. In Mesopotamia, Egypt and even Mycenaean Greece we have some written artefacts that can offer clues about the meaning of life. We do also have what appears to be written script in the Indus Valley, but we often find it on clay tablets accompanying images of animals, shamanic deities and mythological creatures such as what is potentially our modern day unicorn. The script has not been deciphered however, so it is currently meaningless. So we just have those things that are observable to the eye and our subsequent supposition. Trade Network The Indus Valley Trade Network is fascinating. Often it's a case of excavating things from places where they don't belong. For example, you know that when you find bronze in Mesopotamia, someone had to be importing tin. Lapis lazuli typically originates from lands that are in the modern country of Afghanistan. We know that the Sumerians had trade contact with the peoples of the Iranian plateau and subsequently these Afghan lands. However, the Indus Valley civilization was to the east of these lands and would have exercised a similar trade in lapis lazuli for similar reasons and benefits. The Indus Valley merchants were extremely active 
And we know this because we see evidence of Indus seals in Mesopotamia, which points towards a possible Indus Valley trading embassy in Mesopotamia, or something that could be compared to one. There's nothing to suggest such an active link in reverse, however, so there's no reason to believe that Mesopotamian merchants were settled in the Indus Valley. Lapis lazuli was just one of the products that came from the Hindu Kush mountain range in Afghanistan, but its rarity helps us to see the extent of the trade networks in place. So we know that there was a trade network that connected Mesopotamia to the Indus Valley via the Iranian Plateau and the Hindu Kush. However, the Indus Valley created something that would revolutionise their trading capabilities when they built a dockyard at a site known as Lotal, which can be found in the modern Indian coastal state of Gujarat. The dockyard was the result of intelligent engineering and construction with consideration made for its location, shape, materials and physics. So if the Indus Valley civilization was prepared to set sail across the Arabian Sea towards the Gulf of Oman before negotiating the Strait of Hormuz, they would access the Persian Gulf. Now, if we return to lapis lazuli, which is actually just one good example of a product that helps us to demonstrate a fact, the possibility now was that the Indus Valley civilization would happily trade with the people of the Hindu Kush and bring the lapis lazuli across the sea to Mesopotamia, cutting out the necessity for them to trade across the Iranian plateau and the Zagros mountain range. Such was the importance of trade to the Indus Valley civilization that they would develop a standardized measuring system of cubic stone weights. Mesopotamians would happily provide copper and gold as well as wool and perfumes to the Indus Valley civilization seafaring merchants who would bring them cotton, carnelian and lapis lazuli as well as onions and peacocks. So the Indus Valley civilization were mastering the art of trade by sea around a thousand years before the Phoenicians would in their own respective waterways. The Indus Valley civilization would also be able to trade with ancient societies to its east as well as the ones that we have already mentioned to its west which connects us to the lands of modern China and demonstrated by the presence of Chinese jade. So there was an ancient indirect connection between China and Eurasia and yes this could be considered as an early form of the Silk Road that iconic trade relationship between East and West that is reported to have emerged around 2,000 years ago. The trade relationships that connected East and West were likely to have existed a further 2,000 years earlier. Chronology The dates that are understood by historians to correspond to the emergence of the Indus Valley civilization is approximately 3300 BCE, but of course it didn't appear from nowhere. It gradually emerged and evidence of its success and expansion seemed to have accelerated around this time until it reached a peak about 
2600 BCE during a period we call the Mature Harappan. There could have been over 1500 individual settlements during this period. Larger cities would have likely had relationships with the smaller villages in order to utilise their agricultural surplus and traded with them to give them objects of desire for their produce. Conflict appears to have been almost non-existent with a comparative lack of weaponry when compared to other major civilizations. The major cities such as Harappa and Mohenjo-daro were extremely well planned when constructed, centered around a citadel that was not a fortress but a city center. Buildings were connected by a network of streets. The bricks used for buildings were uniform in shape and size and the cities would have a drainage system. We will take a closer look at these features in next week's podcast. The fact that the Indus Valley Civilization was the home of great artisans of metals, gemstones, ceramics and textiles meant that great trading opportunities existed and their ability to construct effective vehicles meant that they were able to transport their wares far and wide in order to bring more and more wealth into the communities. Their merchants were happy to be stationed within other societies, but they did not appear to have foreign merchants within their own, so they were comparatively very outwardly mobile. The Indus Valley Civilization rose to prominence throughout the first half of the 3rd millennium BCE and went on to become highly successful throughout the rest of the millennium until around 2000 BCE, where we can see some kind of gradual decline. The reason for the decline is open for debate. One theory that emerged is the migration of another culture called the Aryans, who were of Indo-European origin, much like those who migrated into Anatolia at a similar time leading to the beginnings of the Hittite Empire. Certainly, Vedic scriptures describe a migration of northern invaders, but this may not have been the cause of the decline, but something that happened in the aftermath of the decline. Some remains suggest violent struggles did take place during this period, but we cannot assume that this is a foreign invasion. Should life have become harder for the vast civilization, then people may have been involved in a desperate conflict with each other for vital resources. It may have simply been a fight for survival. It is certainly possible that the collapse of the Egyptian Old Kingdom and the Neo-Sumerian Empire at the end of the 3rd millennium BCE could have had an impact on the trading opportunities of the Indus Valley maritime merchants. However, we do attribute a lot of this decline in civilizations to climate change, and it may have been natural causes that put sudden pressures onto the otherwise successful Indus Valley civilization. The Indus River flows through the land from the heights of the Tibetan Plateau 
poetically named the Roof of the World, and towards the Arabian Sea, and represents the lifeline of the people who rely on it. Should anything happen to affect the course of this river or its tributaries, then we could have catastrophic effects on the population. If the course of the rivers change, then this could also cause floods as the water builds up, which can destroy agricultural land. Some experts have suggested that a decrease in rainfall could have happened, and this could be an after-effect of the 4.2 kilo-year event, which we have mentioned many times before as something that greatly affected the fortunes of the Akkadian Empire, the Egyptian Old Kingdom and the Trojan culture. It might be this that caused the Indo-European Aryans and Hittites to migrate southwards into the lands of others. However, if Aryans were arriving in the Indus Valley, it may well have been the case that the remaining population of the Indus Valley civilization decided to migrate eastwards in search of new settlements that would become their new home. The flow of the Gagahakra River would have relied upon the arrival of the wet monsoon, so if climatic alterations had affected the monsoon, then the Gagahakra would have dried up, and this is somewhat supported by the fact that this period is believed to have ushered in the aridification of the Indus Valley lands, which became more like desert lands. Yes, I know it's boring, but I'm blaming climate again, and I will weather the verbal onslaught that may follow as a result. However, that is not it, because I believe that the Indus Valley civilization has so much more that can amaze us, and as a result, we're going to be taking a closer look at life within the most famous city of the Indus Valley civilization, Mohenjo-Daro, and we will explore how we could look upon it as the most modern and innovative city of the ancient era. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast episode about the Indus Valley Civilization, a new ancient civilization in a new geographical area. Now, if you're one of those people who feel sad when we get to the end of another podcast episode and sad that you've got to wait another week for the next episode to come out, then what I'd strongly recommend you do is go over to the History of the World podcast website. Um, Not only are there suggestions for other podcasts there, so there are uh, my favourites that are listed in the podcast, in the recommended podcast section, Uh, but also if you go to the interact section of the website then you can join in with the discussions as well so there's been some activity this week on the discussion forums and someone has brought to our attention um, some of the news that comes out since we publish the podcast obviously news comes out which changes the face of some of the information that we've already presented the apodema cave fossils are a hot discussion at the moment in the world of paleoanthropology because it could rewrite the history of Homo sapiens in terms of their first incursions into Europe 
and uh, I mentioned this last week that now there's a discussion uh, has been started up by one of our members on the discussion forum so if you go to the interact section of the website you'll be able to visit that discussion and indeed join in also in that area you've got access to the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr and YouTube channels of the History of the World podcast and also there's a, sl- there's a little game section there where you can put to the test and uh, learn a bit more about ancient writing styles and, uh, and learn how to recognise them and some of the prehistoric ancient art and ritual and buildings indeed so you can go along there i should be adding more to it in the future but there are a couple of um a couple of little games that you can play there little flashcard games so go along and give it a try let's read out some apple podcast reviews so first one is from fishy sill from the United States of America and uh, has put human history cool just started listening but Chris seems solid in presenting an unbiased picture of human history thank you fishy and the next one will be is uh, free turtle 22 once again from the USA a layman's guild to the history of mankind Chris does an amazing job of putting facts out there in a manner that is entertaining and informative at the same time. He is very humble in his delivery, doesn't shove his opinions down our throats and gives the facts as he sees them for us to make our own thoughts on. Keep up the good work, Shane Sacramento CA. Thank you very much. And uh, next one we've got here we uh, is from uh, Campbell from... Uh, Titahi Bay from New Zealand. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Highly recommended. A really enjoyable history. Engaging and insightful. I love history and Chris Weaves and great narrative. Recommended. And finally, from Gunnar London from the United Kingdom. Great podcast, great podcaster. I'm usually more into classical and Bronze Age history, but ever since Chris's History of the World podcast was recommended to me, I've been binge listening trying to catch up Chris has such a good podcasting voice and what he says is even better he really brings the distant prehistory to life such that any history podcast listener with an interest in archaeology will be delighted can't wait until I catch up and he gets into my favorite periods of history and beyond great stuff well thank you to all of you very kind words and very kind of you to take the time to write them as ever, anyone who writes uh, messages or rates and reviews the podcast, I will always happily immortalise you within the podcast by giving you a mention. And the reason for that is because if you rate and review the podcast, you are helping to promote the podcast. It will push it higher up the charts of your chosen listening platform and therefore attract more potential for sponsorship um, and more potential for uh, patrons and uh, obviously if you want to make contributions towards the podcast any financial pon- uh, contributions just go to the History of the World podcast website and click on the Patreon link you can make uh, monthly donations for as little or as much as you like and there are rewards in place 
Um, we've already got people now qualifying for the gift packs which are sent out through the post. We're just uh, getting those together and deciding what to put in them, but they will be History of the World podcast branded gear, so that's something to look forward to. We'll get that out in the post to anyone who hits the threshold for uh, contributions. But other than that, there are other rewards. So go along to the Patreon page and investigate what's in it for you if you choose to support the podcast financially. Okay, so we got an idea about the uh, Indus Valley Civilization, what they were all about, where they were based, and sort of their timeline, their time period, and what kind of lifestyles they were leading, what their nature was. Next week, we're going to be talking about Mahenjadaro. So that is going to be an incredibly important episode because Mahenjadaro is a very, very important city. There are some incredible discoveries there about their way of life, the citizens of that city. You will be absolutely amazed. It's quite unlike anything we've seen before in the ancient world. So I really do warmly encourage you to um, come back this time next week and listen to the story of the citizens of Mahenjadaro. I can't wait to tell you the story and uh, it's going to be a great one. Anyway, thank you so much. I'd like to bid you all a wonderful week and we'll hook up again this time next week. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.